All right. Um, so uh, just to kind of let you know, I, so I've got um, teaching obviously today and then the next two Sundays, I believe. Um, Dr. Master is still going to be out, but hopefully for pretty much November and December through the rest of the year, I think he's supposed to be here and on and hopefully into uh, the next year. Um, but we're going to look today at uh, kind of a turning point in the book. So we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 38 and uh, hopefully get through 39. I think um, as I was looking at them, thought about breaking them up, but I think it's better to look at them together. Um, so Isaiah 38 and 39, just quick kind of uh, review of what we talked about a couple of weeks ago now in uh, chapters 36 and 37. If you remember, there's the historical narrative of um, really what we could call Hezekiah's kind of finest moment, right? When um, Jerusalem is surrounded um, by this emissary from the king of Assyria, and um, they're at this moment, this crisis uh, moment, and Hezekiah trusts the Lord, prays, and the Lord delivers them. Right, um, and we saw that the main issues in those chapters um, really were the issue of trust, right? Trust in the Lord um, and His deliverance of His people, and uh, we also saw this kind of conflict of of God as the the true King uh, uh, over and against the the uh, false gods uh, of the Assyrians, right? So that's the prior chapters, and that leads us now into chapters thirty eight and thirty nine. And we're going to see some more historical narrative. And this historical narrative is going to do a couple of things. Um, one is it's going to give us some insight uh, into how Hezekiah came to this point of trust in the Lord. We'll see actually an explicit promise of God that was behind Hezekiah's standing firm um, against the king of Assyria. But it's also going to set up the next coming chapters, really from chapter 40 all the way through chapter 55, which is sometimes called the book of the servant. So those chapters are going to talk heavily about the servant of the Lord. Uh, and, and these chapters actually really serve to kind of make it very clear that Hezekiah was not the final servant of the Lord. And in fact, Hezekiah was uh, a flawed man and a flawed leader. So it's going to be kind of a letdown in some, in some sense from what we just saw. Uh, and, and remember, Isaiah doesn't always order things chronologically, and this is definitely one of those cases. These chapters, 38 and 39, actually happened before what happened in 36 and 37, as we'll see. Um, but it's setting up this next part of, of Isaiah. We've seen allusions already to uh, this concept of the servant. Um, the Lord has talked about my servant David, right? Um, but it's, it's going to be clear uh, in case anyone who is reading this is tempted to think that perhaps Hezekiah is that final servant who's going to you know, reign forever, it, it's not him, right? Um, and one of the kind of main points of this is really, as Pastor Philip said last Sunday evening, uh, to quote him, the best of men are men at best. Uh, and that's certainly true of Hezekiah. Um, so we'll go through this kind of in three sections. We're going to see uh, the first part of chapter 38 is the historical narrative of what happens with Hezekiah's illness and his prayer to the Lord and the Lord's answer. Um, then in chapters 9 through 20, um, actually through 22, we'll take that together. Um, there's a reflection, Hezekiah's reflection on what happened to him, uh, his meditation on death and life. Uh, and then we'll see in chapter 39 um, the the 
incident with the envoy from Babylon, which will kind of color in a bad way everything that we, we see in chapters 38. So um, chapter 38, I think, mostly uh, reflects well uh, on Hezekiah to some extent, but um, as we read it, um, you're going to see there are hints of, of weakness already creeping in um, in the way that Hezekiah conducts himself as, uh, as a man of faith or maybe a man of slightly inconsistent faith, we could say. Um, so let me read uh, starting in verse 1 of chapter 38. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add fifteen years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back ten steps. So the sun turned back on the dial, the ten steps, by which it had declined. Um, so this chapter opens with the phrase, in those days, and it's kind of intentionally vague uh, about when this happens. Um, but as you can see in verse 6, uh, where the word of the Lord says, I will deliver you from this city, I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. That obviously means this happens before uh, chapters 36 and 37. Um, but Hezekiah has uh, apparently a serious sickness, right? Serious illness. Uh, the text says that he was at the point of death. In fact, uh, Isaiah comes to him and basically tells him, prepare to die, right? Um, you, are, uh, you need to set your affairs in order. Um, you're, going to, you're going to die. Uh, and he says, you... Uh, you shall not recover. Now, um, it's interesting because, uh, as we'll see, he does recover, right? Uh, so one just quick note, uh, oftentimes when a word of prophecy like this comes, uh, it's an opportunity for the person receiving it to pray to the Lord, and uh, perhaps the Lord may do otherwise, right? We see that in Jonah, for example. Jonah brings the, the message to Nineveh that, hey, you're, you're going to be judged by the Lord, but they turn and they repent, and the Lord does not judge them, ultimately. Um, if you read Jeremiah 18, the Lord is very explicit. He says, if I say I'm going to build up this, this city, and the city falls into idolatry, then I will judge them. Or the opposite, if, uh, if I say I will judge this city, but the city turns and repents, the Lord says, I will then not judge them. Um, so uh, this is another one of those cases where uh, where Hezekiah recognizes um, that perhaps he can plead with the Lord to not bring his death, at least immediately. Now, uh, it's interesting to keep that in mind as we go to chapter 39, um, because there's a little bit different uh, scenario that happens there when he's given a word of prophecy. So, at any rate, uh, he's, he's going to die, and he responds um, 
in prayer in verse 2. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Um, There is, I think, uh, kind of a mixed, um, mixed response here. And pretty much all of the commentators agree that his example of prayer is good, uh, but the, the basis he lays for his prayer is not commendable. Um, he, as you can see in his words, looks primarily to his own record. And uh, it is true that he had been, a, for the most part, a, a good king. He had followed the Lord. Um, he had trusted uh, the Lord. But there's this sense you get, even as you read it, of uh, a kind of self-interest, self-pity, um, almost a sense of he's trying to bargain with the Lord in some ways. Um, and we also see, if, if you were to look in Second Chronicles 32, uh, verses 24 to 31, that um, the true state of his heart towards the end of his reign was pride. Uh, he's denounced there for the pride that he had towards the end of his reign. So I think it's, it's uh, like I said, it's commendable, obviously, that he's turning to the Lord in prayer, and yet there's something not quite... Um, write about the basis for this prayer, especially when you compare it back to chapter 37, when the prayer to save the city was based exclusively on the Lord's glory and honor and being faithful to his covenant, right? There was no sense of himself involved in that prayer. Uh, Now, I don't want to go too hard on Hezekiah because obviously we would, many of us, be tempted to kind of do the same thing in that situation, right? He's facing facing death, serious sickness. So uh, we, in some sense, can identify with him. But I think the, the text is trying to point out uh, that there's not, this is not wholly, uh, fully commendable in terms of the way he's approaching this. Uh, but nonetheless, the Lord is gracious in his response, right? As we see uh, in verses 4 through 6. Um, you notice in verses 4 through 6 that God, in his answer, doesn't ever mention Hezekiah's record, right? He doesn't say anything about whether Hezekiah... Uh, was faithful to him. He bases it um, on a couple of things. He does say he he notices uh, Hezekiah's prayer, right? I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. So there's a sense in which the Lord is kind and gracious, and he sees and recognizes Hezekiah's distress. Um, But notice, instead of basing it on Hezekiah's faithfulness, he, the Lord, is going to base his response on his own faithfulness to his covenant. And I think that's the point of when, when, when God um, tells Isaiah to say, uh, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father. He's hearkening back to that covenant with David. What I'm about to do, what I'm, what I'm going to tell you I'm going to do, uh, is because of the promises that I've made to David, not because of your record as a, as a king. Uh, and he says that he is going to add 15 years to Hezekiah's life. Um, But not only is he concerned with Hezekiah's own personal life, he also is concerned with uh, the city, right? The the people. Uh, And so he says that um, he will deliver both Hezekiah and the city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and he will defend this city. Um, There's, there's I think, a little bit of parallel going on there in that the Lord promises Hezekiah uh, a temporary reprieve. It's a long one, 15 years, right? 
Um, but there's also, in some sense, the the king is as a stand-in or a representative for the country or for the nation, for the city. Uh, and so, in some sense, there's I think a hint here that the relief for the city for Jerusalem is also going to be temporary. Um, it'll be longer than 15 years, but it's not going to be ultimate. We'll see that as well as we get to chapter uh, 39. Um, okay, let me see if there's anything else I want to say about those. Um, any questions about that so far? So this is the situation. Uh, Hezekiah is sick. At the point of death, the Lord answers his prayer out of his own graciousness and says, I will extend your life. I'm also going to save the city. Um, Verse 7 and 8 then, he also gives a sign to Hezekiah um, to confirm this word that he has given. He gives him a a sign, and you'll notice the connection to Ahaz, right, who had refused a sign back in chapter 7. This dial of Ahaz could actually, could be stairs, uh, and it's not clear whether Ahaz had designed the stairs this way or if it was sort of coincidental, but at any rate, these stairs, um, they, they act as a sundial, and they show the progression of the sun throughout the day, uh, and the sign that the Lord gives is a, is a miraculous sign, right, by making that shadow go back 10 steps or essentially rolling back time. Um, however he did that, whether he actually did roll back time or it's simply a matter of changing the way the light casts that shadow, we don't know. But it's clear that the Lord uh, gives him a miraculous sign to confirm the promise that he had made to him. Any questions so far? I thought I'd heard in the creation account or something like that that it is actually known scientifically that that happened. That the that the earth rolled back? I don't know. I'm not familiar with that. I hear them on the radio every once in a while. Okay. It's interesting. The um, We'll see this here at the end of the chapter. There's a little note. But if you read... So I'm spoiling this a little bit, but if you read the other accounts, um, I think it's the, the account in 2 Kings 20. Um, it's clear actually from that account that Hezekiah asked for the sign. It wasn't uh, simply the Lord you know, being gracious to say, I'm going to give you a sign, but Hezekiah actually asks, like, what is the sign? You'll, you'll see this. Actually, you can turn ahead to verse 22. Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? So uh, in the, I think it's the second Kings passage, Isaiah says, you will go up to the house of the Lord after three days. He tells him you're going to recover in three days. Uh, and Hezekiah says, what's the sign that that's going to happen? So another little hint that perhaps his faith isn't quite as uh, solid as we thought it was. He's asking for a sign. Um, all right, let's move on then to chapter, or verses, excuse me, verses 9 through 20. So nine, verse 9 tells us what these next verses are. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. So this is going to be a, almost a psalm or a meditation on what had happened to him. <clears throat> I said in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. 
Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. I calmed myself until morning. Like a lion, breaks, like a lion he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. O Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. O restore me to health and make me live. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you, death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you, as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. The Lord will save me, and we will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. We'll uh, stop there. Um, so obviously this is Hezekiah reflecting right on his um, sickness and his recovery. Um, Alec Motier is the one who he calls it a meditation on death and life. And you can see that right in the first a uh, few verses. It's primarily a meditation on death and the death that he was facing. Uh, there's this transition section, I think, in 14 and 15, and then 16 through 20, you see this meditation on on life or how to live in light of what he's experienced. Um, so he's he's facing uh, death, and as he says in verse 10, it's in the middle of my days, or kind of the prime of his life. Um, if you go based on his, when he does die, um, and backtrack the 15 years, it puts it uh, roughly 702. Uh, and so he's probably around 39 or something like that. Um, not especially young, uh, but still quite young um, for a king in, in Judah at that time. Um, and so he's, he's in the prime of his life, in the middle of his days, he's facing death, he must depart. Uh, it's, it's interesting, these um, similes that he gives, right, to what's going to happen. So he says that um, his de- dwelling is plucked up, verse 12, and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. So it's kind of temporary, a sense of fragility um, in, in his life. The, uh, he gives this picture of a weaver, uh, right? Very uh, striking picture of a, a weaver, you know, weaving something, uh, kind of weaving the pattern of our life uh, in terms of, you know, the, the events that we... Um, that, that the events that happen in our lives, the, the details of them, it builds this pattern that we're weaving. Um, but notice what he says, uh, it's, uh, he cuts me off from the loom. So there's, think of this picture of, you know, some, a weaver sitting there weaving a, a piece of cloth or something, but somebody else comes along and basically says, I'm snipping off the thread right here. So he's basically saying that it's the Lord who allocates the amount of material we have in this life to build whatever it is that we're, we're building with our, with our lives. Um, and God will, will cut us off when it's his time to do so. Um, this phrase from day to night is, uh, a Hebrew idiom. Um, it's not quite clear to us, you know, in the English from day to night, but it basically means before the day is out or imminently, uh, it could be at any moment that the Lord decides to, to take his life. Um, and some of the commentators, um, because of 
some of this phrasing, and especially in verse 13, where he says, I calmed myself until morning. So it's kind of a sense that uh, I've made it through the day. Um, you know, I'm ready for the night. But then like a lion, he breaks all my bones. That coupled with verse 17, when he's recovered, he says, uh, you have cast all my sins behind your back. Some of the commentators think that um, Hezekiah had the sense that he was actually under judgment for some kind of sin. Um, so he's not, some of what he's saying here is not necessarily uh, true of a believer who dies in Christ, but is more a sense of he feels like he's not in a good place with the Lord at this moment and is potentially um, going to be judged. Uh, and then he moves into uh, recovery and recognizing that the Lord has saved him, not only from the sickness, but also has, has forgiven him. Um, so keep that in mind. Wait, uh, what, what parts are in, don't seem like appropriate to a believer? Is it like verses 10 and 15? Yeah, so, the, so like verse 13, like a lion, he breaks all my bones. Um, this sense, verse 11, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. Now he may just be saying, I'm about to die and I'm not going to see, I'm not going to be with people in the land of the living anymore. Um, but some commentators also see there a hint of he, he's not sure of his own state as he's going to die. Um, I don't, I don't know. It's hard for me to tell reading this, whether that's true or not. Uh, it is clear that he's, he isn't, I don't think confident going to the grave at this point, the way he responds uh, and these first few verses, I don't think he felt like he was in a great place. Now, that may just be somebody who's in doubt at the end of their life, right, and struggling with some of that. Um, it is clear by verse 17 that he's in a much better place and recognizes that the Lord has cast all of his sins behind his back. He's forgiven. Um, so, yeah, make of that what you will. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not sure where I fall on all of that. Um, now in verses 14 and 15, I think we do see this transition. So he, he uses the metaphor of, or a simile of a, of a bird, a swallow or a crane or a dove to kind of compare his own prayers to the songs of a bird. And perhaps he means he just feels very feeble and weak at this point. Like he, he's not sure what they're, um, accomplishing. Um, my eyes are weary with looking upward. Oh Lord, I am oppressed. Um, be my pledge of safety. But again, he's turning to the Lord at least, right? He's looking to the Lord. Um, and then he says in verse 15, What shall I say? For he has spoken to me and he himself has done it. I walk slowly. Uh, that actually could probably be translated, I walk humbly. Uh, or I will walk humbly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. So because of what had, he had experienced, he now is going to live differently, is essentially what he's saying. Um, and then he says in verse 16, O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. O restore me to health and make me live. Behold, it was for my welfare. That word welfare is actually shalom. It was for my peace, for my, for my wholeness that I had great bitterness. But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. So again, there's a clear turning in, in confidence, resting in what he recognizes the Lord has done for him and saving him, um, and as a kind of a pledge that he's going to live differently because of this. For Sheol does not thank you, verse 18, death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. 
that verse right there is another maybe indication that, again, he had this doubt about the state that he was in. Um, the living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. So again, that commitment to thank the Lord. And then he says, the father makes known to the children your faithfulness. So there's also a commitment here. It sounds like that he's going to have this sort of lasting family legacy, right? That the father should tell their children about the Lord's goodness to them. And then he finishes in verse 20, the Lord will save me and we will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. So you'll notice the contrast from verse 10 when he says, I'm consigned to the gates of Sheol to verse 20. Now he's going to play the music at the house of the Lord and it's we, right? There's, I think, a sense of communal. He's going to invite others to praise the Lord with him. Um, we will play my music. So clear progression, right? Uh, through this meditation um, on death and on life. And it's the hinge is what the Lord has done for him, right? In the, in verse 15. So this is all very good, right? And we're kind of thinking, you know, this is the same Hezekiah we saw in chapter 37 uh, that is trusting in the Lord. Um, and it'd be great if we could just stop there. Um, but we can't. We have to keep going. Uh, we do get this little historical note in verses 21 and 22 that, uh, remember we talked a couple weeks ago about the Lord using ordinary means. He often or usually uses ordinary means. He can work directly, miraculously, as he did in giving the sign of the shadow going back 10 steps. But he also can use ordinary means. So now Isaiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. So in some sense, he's also giving Hezekiah a very direct picture of uh, how he's going to heal um, and interestingly, one of the commentaries said that, um, in speaking with a, a doctor, medical doctor, he said this actually could work because of the sugar that's involved there it can actually kill whatever it was, uh, was in, um, these wounds or these, the boil that Hezekiah had. Um, uh, but at any rate, the Lord is going to use, um, ordinary means, it seems in this case to heal him, though we recognize, and Isaiah, I think is saying that the Lord is behind all of those things as well, right? He's the one who grants the healing. And then verse 22, as I mentioned, Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? So has it, we find out that Hezekiah had actually asked for a sign um, from the Lord. Um, let me see if there's anything else I want to say on these verses. Okay. Any questions about Anything we've talked about so far. It's not always a bad thing to ask for a sign, is it, though? Remember Saul did something in haste, and he didn't wait to ask? Um, he did do something in haste. Um, he didn't wait, but I don't think he was necessarily supposed to wait for a sign. It was more a... Um, a word sent. He had said, Samuel had said he was going to come. And he didn't wait for Samuel to come, which he should have waited for. Um, the, the sense I think that I get in other places where someone asks for a sign is typically that um, the Lord is gracious often in granting the sign. But I think most of the time the biblical text is not portraying it as 
something to like an example to follow or something that's commendable. So even if you think of like Gideon and the, the fleece um, that he lays out, the sense in that passage I think is not that um, it's it's more the sense of like the Lord had told Gideon, "This is what you need to do. I'm going to go with you." And Gideon kind of trusts, but he's not quite sure, so he asks for a sign. Um, and Isaiah here is actually less, I think, um, comment, condemning of that. Uh, I think that's why he leaves it towards the end. He just makes it a little note. He doesn't say it up front. Um, but in Second Kings, the passage in Second Kings, I, I think it's a little bit more clear that um, Hezekiah is kind of wavering, and he so he asks for the sign. But it's, I remember when I think it was Ahab that they said the Lord told him to ask for a sign, and he said, "No, I'm not going to ask." Right. And in that sense, in that so in that particular situation, um, that's a sign of um, of Ahaz's clear unbelief, and he's just rejecting what the Lord's actually commanding him to do. In that sense, yeah, the Lord tells him, you know, ask for a sign as high as heaven, uh, which is interesting because of the sign that He gives Hezekiah here, right? Involves in some sense heaven, or at least the, the sun. Um, Ahaz should have, in that sense, said, yes, Lord, give me a sign, because the Lord's telling him, ask for a sign. And then the Lord says, I'm going to give you a sign anyway, right? And it's this, the sign of the virgin birth. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a, it's a complicated picture of, of, you know, asking the Lord for a sign. I think, um, ultimately, the, the, the Bible would have us accept the Lord at his word and say, I trust that what you're going to do, you're going to do. Uh, and I think in this, in this case, Hezekiah is a little bit... Um, He's slightly condemned for not doing that. And certainly today, um, I, I don't think, I think the way that the Lord is going to, guides his people is through uh, his word and through prayer, right? And not, you know, asking for, for signs. Any other questions, thoughts on this so far? So chapter 38 ends kind of on a high note. We saw a really high note in 37. Uh, 38 seems to be ending on a pretty high note. The problem is what happens in chapter 39 kind of undermines uh, everything that we just saw in 38. So let's read chapter 39. <clears throat> and think of the just the... Um, sometimes in, in reading these chapters, you can get a sense as you read through it clearly of this is the feeling I have. So 37, as, you re- you know, as you're reading chapter 37, the feeling you have is triumph, victory. Yes, Hezekiah is trusting the Lord. Right? And the Lord saves his people. Chapter 38, I think is mostly you get the sense of, ah, okay, this is good. You know, Hezekiah recognizes um, the Lord's kindness and saving him from this illness. And he's also going to deliver the city. And there's a sense you think the Lord's, you know, Hezekiah is trusting the Lord now. But there's still some little question marks. But especially now in, 30, in light of 39, you'll recognize things aren't as great as they seemed in chapter 38. So 39. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. The word behind that is he delighted in welcoming them. And he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. 
He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. So, what's the sense you get as you read through that? Not great, right? Not, not, a, not a great end to these four chapters of historical narrative. Um, and that's, that's on, on purpose. Um, it's um, clear that this is not just meant as some kind of historical detail, but rather uh, it's highlighting, again, the fact that Hezekiah is a very flawed man and a flawed leader. And for all of his faithfulness, he was still inconsistent. Um, in his in his trust in the Lord, uh, just after we finished reading about his commitment to living in light of what had happened to him, um, you get the sense that the moment the Babylonians showed up to wow him and kind of uh, uh, dazzle him, he was all for it. Like, hey, yeah, this is great. Uh, I'm going to welcome them in. This is wonderful. I want to kind of cozy up to them. I'm going to show him everything I've got. Uh, there's no sense at all, right? You don't see anywhere that he consulted the Lord about how to handle this situation. Um, reading between the lines, uh, this is more than just Babylon saying, hey, we're glad you recovered. Um, the timing of this is such that Merodach Baladin is actually rebelling against Assyria. Uh, he wants to stir up some rebellion down in Palestine. So this is basically a, like, hey, let's, let's cooperate and try and and see what we can do in uh, resisting Assyria, maybe break away. Uh, and the sense is that um, Hezekiah is all for that. Um, and that's what he is, uh, in other places, um, denounced for um, in Scripture. So uh, there's a sense in which Isaiah is saying, uh, you can even kind of hear it in his response, right, when he questions Hezekiah about who these men were and what they wanted, and then he says basically, you know what, if you love Babylon so much, all your stuff's going to go to Babylon. Your descendants, they're going to go to Babylon. It's all going to go to Babylon. Um, we, we know, obviously, that the, the reprieve that Jerusalem got from Assyria is temporary. We, we find out, if you read the accounts in um, 2 Kings 17, it's kind of a summary statement of why Israel and Judah ended up going into exile. And it's it's for long years of uh, idolatry, rebellion, not trusting the Lord. Um, but in some sense, this episode with Hezekiah is kind of a small picture of, of what that meant. And it meant allying themselves with worldly powers rather than uh, trusting the Lord. And you can see even in this kind of sad uh, last response that Hezekiah has, um, you know, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. What, what is, why is he saying that? He's basically extremely short-sighted and says, you know what, there's going to be uh, peace and security in my days, which isn't actually 
fully true, right? Because they're threatened by Assyria. Um, but he thinks, you know, as long as things are good while I am ruling, then I'm okay with that. Which, as the king of Judah, he's not allowed to, to think that way, really. Uh, and you can even see in, in um, the note about some of your own sons, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Well, that's threatening the line of David, right? The, that's a threat, again, to the promises of the Lord actually coming true. Um, he's willing to let that happen as long as it doesn't happen during his, his own time. Um, so it's, it's really sad. Um, there's also one of the commentators said that, that it's likely that, that uh, Hezekiah's son Manasseh, who, who comes to the throne pretty young, um, that this was common back then for, for kings to co-rule, so there would be an overlap uh, of time. And that's actually the way that we make sense of some of the dates that happened uh, there's an overlap where a father and a son would rule at the same time. That's probably what happens with Hezekiah and his son Manasseh. And Manasseh turns out to be one of the like, worst kings. And Hezekiah had to have seen that as he's co-ruling with, with his son, that whatever religious reforms Hezekiah had brought about, Manasseh is going to end up undoing all of them uh, and take Judah back into complete idolatry and, re- and rejection of the Lord. Um, Alec Motir says, um, he points out, he points out that, remember, when Hezekiah is told, you're going to die, you shall not recover, he prays. He turns and prays, Lord, please spare me. When Isaiah brings this prophecy, he has the opportunity again to actually pray and say, you know, Lord, please don't do this for your own sake. Or He doesn't. He sort of weakly acquiesces. Uh, and so Alec Mature says, when pride replaces humility, self-satisfaction replaces concern for others and works replace faith, then the die is cast and the kingdom is doomed. When the word of God is met with smugness instead of tears and prayers, the word proves its obduracy and accomplishes its grim purposes. And so we're really left at this point uh, with all kinds of questions, right? Again, those questions of like, are the promises of God going to come to naught? Uh, will God's people be dragged off into judgment and left there? Um, who is this, you know, servant of the Lord that is? It keeps being, you know, alluded to. It's clearly not Hezekiah. It's not any of these kings. Um, where is Israel's hope? Where is Judah's hope? Where is the hope for the people of God? Uh, that's the. That's where I think this this point ends, as it leads in then to chapters forty through fifty five, which are about the true servant of God, which we all know is, is Christ, right? Um, but one of the points of this is, is to really highlight, you know, Isaiah over and over again is saying, do not trust in man. Your only hope is in God himself. Um, there is no man um, other than, as we'll find out, the God-man, right, who can save you. Uh, there is no grounds for hope in anyone other than the Lord himself. Uh, and that's where you must turn. Uh, in order to be saved. Um, just some other, briefly, some other lessons um, we can take from this, from these passages. Again, the, the best of men are men at best. Don't be surprised when even uh, really godly people fall uh, or they're a bit inconsistent in their faith or there are times where they just let us down. 
um, the way that, in some sense, Hezekiah sort of lets us down as we see him make a commitment to live in light of the Lord's kindness to him and then immediately falls, right? Um, doesn't follow through with that. We shouldn't be surprised when that happens. Um, I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, grievous sin uh, from people in, in positions of leadership, but more a sense of, you know, we recognize, like, no, even solid, mature Christian is perfect. And there's going to be times where we're potentially going to be offended by someone else's sin that we thought, you know what, I thought that they were better than that in a sense, right? It's going to happen. Um, man is, is weak. Um, some other things, I mean, some of these are really pulled straight from uh, last last Sunday's sermon by Pastor Phillips, because there's a lot of overlap between the way Josiah ends and what we see here from Hezekiah. But um, even godly men and women need to live carefully, right? Um, Hezekiah was quick to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit to trusting the Lord and living in light of this, um, but then very quickly fell into pride, right? And was, was kind of awed by this visit from the Babylonians. Um, we see that God's providence and purposes stand behind everything, um, including saving Hezekiah from this illness. Part of that was so that he would then pray to the Lord uh, for the city, and the Lord would rescue the city, as we saw in chapter 37. Um, another point that, um, that one of the commentators makes is what, whatever we trust in other than God, so in this sense, you know, in this passage, it's Babylon. They trust in Babylon. Ultimately, that will eventually turn on us and destroy us. Whatever sin it is that we want to cling to, because we think it's good, it's going to turn around and destroy us, ultimately. Uh, we must trust in the Lord himself. And so Babylon, uh, Judah is going to, they're going to make an alliance with Babylon, cling to Babylon. Babylon ultimately is going to be the one to carry them off into exile um, because of their sin. All right. Uh, any questions or thoughts from that? The next couple of weeks we'll start looking at the uh, these sections regarding the servant of the Lord, the true servant, the one who is far better than Hezekiah. Let me pray, and we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that even in these um, sad passages, we're pointed to the true hope of Christ. Um, help us to recognize, Lord, that, that we can trust in no man, um, just as Judah could not trust ultimately in Hezekiah. Um, we must trust in you alone, and we, we do look to Christ, uh, your true servant, uh, for salvation, for rescue, for forgiveness of sin. We thank you for his death and resurrection. We thank you that he calls us uh, to himself as the good shepherd, and we pray that you would help us to follow him. Uh, would you help us to worship rightly this morning now? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.